Oh man, good morning. Uh, my name is Gentry, if we have not met yet. Nice to meet you guys. Uh, I'm on the pastoral and teaching team here at Ethos Hillsboro Village. Uh, I'm not the campus pastor. Uh, that would be Joshua, who I'm teaching because they are on full-on baby watch, him and his wife right now. Uh, and so, yeah, so just prayerfully expecting the birth of their daughter here any moment. Come on. <laughs> Um, so we are in the midst of a new-ish teaching series called To Live is Christ, where we're really just exploring Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. It's a letter that Paul wrote to this church that he planted nearly like 10 years earlier, and he's just pouring out to them. They had, you know, kind of given him a financial gift. He's updating them on his status and just pouring out his love on them. This week, we're, gonna, we're still in chapter one, but we're going to be in verses six through 11 this week. Josh has done a great job setting us up, painting out and coloring in what this letter is about. So if you want more context, go back and listen to those teachings. But we're going to pick up where we kind of left off last week in verse six. That's where Josh landed, and he talked to us about this concept of the day of Christ, which is Paul's way of talking about the return of Jesus. And we're going to begin there this morning and get to Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11. Before we really get going, though, could I, does someone want to like raise their hand and volunteer to read verses 6 through 11 for us out loud? Go for it. What was that six through eleven? Yeah. Be confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Yeah. It's right for you to feel this way about all of you, so that I have put you in my heart, whether I am chains, defending the and confirming the gospel, all of you share God's grace with me. God can testify in the long for all of you, for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thank you so much. So... We're going to really be focusing in on verses 9 through 11, Paul's prayer that we heard there at the end of that reading. But I think it's important that we begin in verse 6, where Paul introduces this idea of the day of Christ, because his entire prayer that we're going to get through and kind of walk through step by step is completely oriented around the concept of Christ's return. Growing up, I did not like the idea of Christ's return. Didn't like it. Um, I grew up in a church tradition where I don't remember us talking about the return of Christ all that much. It was definitely there, but it wasn't like a central pillar that I remember. It was our, the posture that I remember was more like, oh yeah, like Jesus will come back. That's how all of this is gonna end. And that's like the end of the story. And it was just this kind of like, yeah, that's gonna happen. Um, and I, growing up, did not like the idea of Christ's return. I think that's due in large part because my, my idea of Christ's return was more informed by pop culture 
uh, than it was by scripture, than it was by the Bible. You know, my idea of Christ's return was more influenced by movies and TV shows and novels than it was by scripture. When I thought of the day of Christ's return, I thought of things like nuclear fallout or a zombie apocalypse or doomsday on the level of like the movie 2012. Does anyone remember that? Like the whole Mayan calendar situation? You know, the, their calendar ended in 2012. So that's when the world's gonna end is like Y2K all over again. Uh, but I grew up, I kind of came up in the heyday of this post-apocalyptic like renaissance where I feel like it was hard to find entertainment when I was coming up that was not either about the end of the world or about life after the end of the world. That was like most of what movie, TV shows, books, etc., were. You know, things like The Walking Dead. Does anyone remember? Is that show still going? It is still going? Wow, that's fascinating. Or The Book of Eli, um, great movie. Uh, or bo- books like The Road by Cormac McCarthy, which also was adapted into a film as well. And I remember having conversations with, with my sisters, with Taylor, like 10 plus years ago. That was like, if you knew the world was gonna end tomorrow, how would you spend today? What would you do? What would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back? And I think how we answer that question is actually really revealing about how we think about the return of Jesus. And Paul's posture here in Philippians and elsewhere in the New Testament is very different than middle school and high school gentry, right? Middle school gentry was just terrified. I was just scared about all the scary things that flooded my mind when I thought about the end of the world as we know it. And high school me was far more concerned with making sure that I got to experience all the things in the world that I wanted to experience, you know? Like, I was, Taylor and I, we were like, all right, if we know Jesus is coming back, let's just go elope, and like, I at least wanna be married when Jesus comes back, right? That was like my posture. But Paul, his posture is a bit different. And I think it's important for us to grasp a little bit of Paul's understanding of the return of Christ to really kind of get the picture that, he's pla- that he is painting in verses nine through 11 in his prayer. Because every bit of that prayer is oriented around the return of Christ. So Paul wants us to understand the day of Christ so that we can be prepared for the day of Christ. So those are the two things we're gonna kind of talk about today. Understanding the return of Jesus, and preparing for that day. So first, understanding the day of Christ. Let's just, let's put it out there. The idea of a man coming back on the clouds is a little strange. Right? It's weird enough like that we believe that God took on human form, died, was buried, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and then he's coming back. All kind of weird. Josh last week talked about like, without the return of Jesus, everything we believe is weird, which is true. Because the return of Jesus is the fulfillment, the consummation of all of those other things. It kind of completes the circle of what is happening in scripture and in the life of Jesus. But we have to admit that the return of Jesus at first glance is kind of strange. But I believe that once we kind of understand where the story is coming from, where it is, where it's headed, 
then we will be able to understand the day of Christ a little bit more. It all begins to make a bit more sense. And we don't have time to really do a full deep dive study into the return of Christ this morning, but there's two kind of major things that I want us to understand and grasp about the return of Jesus this morning. That the return of Christ, it will be a day of justice and righteousness. And that the day of Christ's return will be a day of a wedding feast and celebration. So the day of Christ is a day of justice and righteousness. Let's begin there. There's something within us that all, all of us long for all that is wrong in the world to be made right. Something deep within our soul that as we see evil and injustice manifested around us, something deep in our bones longs for justice and righteousness. As we look out at the world, we get this sense that all is not as it should be. Things were not in, as they were intended from the beginning in biblical language. We feel this deep in our bones. And it doesn't take long, and we don't have to look far to like, feel this feeling. Turn on the news, scroll through social media for like 15 seconds, and I'm sure you will feel some version of this feeling that all is not right in the world. This cry for justice within us. And it's been that way since page three of the Bible. And the day of Christ, the day Jesus returns, is the day that God sets all of those things right as they were intended from the beginning. Because it, Genesis, or in Revelation 20 and 21, we kind of get this layout of some things that happen on that day. And the first thing that we'll walk through here in Revelation 20 is the defeat of evil once and for all. In Revelation 20, there, we see the final and full defeat of Satan. Satan's already been defeated by Jesus, but on the day that Jesus returns, he will be cast into a lake of fire and destroyed, and it will be a day when sin and suffering and sickness will be no more, and the King of Kings will wipe away the tears from our eyes. And following the defeat of Satan in Revelation 20 is then the judgment of the living and the dead, where all of humanity stands before the throne of God and the book of life is opened. And for those whose name is written in the book of life, they enter into eternal life with God. Beautiful. And for those who are found to be wicked or rebellious, they face what John calls the second death and they are done away with. And this idea of judgment can make us a bit uncomfortable, right? I know there's a part of me that feels uncomfortable, of like, geez, that feels, feels harsh. There's something almost feels wrong about when we think about judgment, but hear me out. I'm there with you guys, but hear me out. The, this is a day, this is the justice of God. God is purging evil and sin, and wickedness, and rebellion, because those things cannot enter, hear me, they cannot enter into what is coming next, which is the creation of new heaven and a new earth. This brilliant, radiant new creation where God and humanity dwell together, the first thing we hear from the throne of God after the judgment is 
there's this throat, there's this voice that John hears from the throne that says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This beautiful new creation, this is what our souls long for in the depths of who we are because this is what we were created for. So the day of Jesus is a day of righteousness and justice, but I think that's something that we all kind of get. We've heard nothing I said right now was, I think, particularly new, but something that I feel, at least I really had to grow in, is the idea that the day of Christ is a day of celebration. It is a wedding day. It is a day of feasts and parties and rejoicing. And sure, yes, that day will be terrifying for those who have rejected God. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus Church, for the family of God, this is a day of celebration and rejoicing. All throughout the New Testament, referring to the day of the Lord is wedding language and wedding imagery. Paul in Ephesians chapter five talks about the church is the bride of Christ. Because in new creation is the day that we are fully unified. New creation kicks off with a feast and celebration. And in Revelation, we see what is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where all the saints are gathered in the presence of God, sitting at probably the longest banquet table in the world, right? Sitting next to the people that we love, enjoying the presence of God, and feasting together in celebration of what he has done. It's a day of wedding bells and feasts for those who are in Christ. It's the full union, the full consummation of Christ and his bride, the church. And Jesus, all over the, his gospels, uses this wedding feast and party and celebration language in many of his parables to talk about his return. That he's gone to prepare a place for us He's gone to get the party ready. Scripture says that we want it, it wants us to understand the day of Christ because it wants us to be prepared for the day of Christ. Paul wants the church in Philippi to be prepared for the day that Jesus returns. So let's talk about Paul's prayer in preparing for the day of Christ. Paul's heart is for the church to be prepared for the day of Christ. It's important that we understand what I just did, painting out a little bit so that we can see Paul's prayer more clearly. All over, I mentioned earlier that Jesus uses this wedding language and imagery, and there's one parable that he gives in Matthew chapter 25, known as the parable of the 10 virgins or the 10 bridesmaids. And it's the story where Jesus, he's like, hey, so the kingdom of God it's, it's kind of like there were 10 bridesmaids getting ready for a wedding celebration. And uh, there were t five wise bridesmaids and there were five foolish bridesmaids. And as the groom was gone and was delayed in his coming back, the, all 10 of the bridesmaids, they, they kind of got tired and fell asleep. But then at midnight, there was this loud trumpet blast and someone announced, behold, the groom is coming. Like, he's here, get ready. Come out to meet him. And the five who were wise, they had brought extra oil. They were prepared to wait for the Lord. They were prepared to wait for the groom, but the five foolish, they did not bring enough oil. 
And so they ask the five wise, they're like, hey, can we have some of your oil so we can all, and they're like, uh, no, uh, you can go and get some of your own oil, go to the marketplace and get your oil. And so as they go to the marketplace, the other five are welcomed in to the wedding feast, into the celebrations. And as the other five come, they come and knock on the door and they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. And the groom answers the door and he says to them, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then Jesus says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. What I want you to notice about this parable is Jesus' heart. Jesus' heart for his disciples as he's looking at them and teaching them is that, hey, I am coming back. I'm coming back. And I want you to be prepared. I want you to be ready for that day. I'm coming back. And Paul, like Jesus, wants the Philippian church to be prepared for the day of Christ. And so he gives this prayer, and in the prayer we see kind of four markers of preparation for that day. One, that the church, that their love may abound more and more. And that with two, with knowledge and discernment, they may be able to approve what is excellent. And three, so be found pure and blameless on the day of Christ. And that four, they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So we're gonna walk through Paul's prayer here real quick. So Paul begins, he says, my prayer for you, church, is that your love may abound more and more. What that word abound that Paul uses, it carries with it this idea of an excessive amount, like way, way more than you would ever actually need. It's this overflowing kind of love. Guys, we've talked about love a good bit in the last year, so I don't feel like I need to really beat this horse, but he's talking about agape love, love in motion, love in action, not just like, hey, like I'm a nice Christian kind of love, like show up, smile, wave, whatever. It's not emotive love. It is love of service. It's a love that walks in these doors and says, how can I love and serve and minister and pray for my brothers and sisters here? How can I lay my life down in service of the people sitting here? It's more than just a smile. And how were you? How was your week? Paul prays that our love would overflow It's the overflow that we'd be so full of the Spirit, so full of the love of Christ that it wells up out of us and overflows spilling into our time together. That your love may abound more and more. And that too, with knowledge and discernment, we may be able to approve what is excellent. Paul has similar prayers to this particular line in several of his letters. Prayers about the knowledge of Christ, knowing Christ. And there's part of me, I have to believe that on some level, Paul, though he's writing to a church in Greece and he's writing in ancient Greek, he's thinking in Hebrew because he's an Israelite, right? And in Hebrew thought, to know something is not just to know about something. It's not just to know about God. He doesn't say, I want you to know about Christ. He says, I want you to know Christ In Hebrew thought, knowledge is experiential. Knowledge is this intimate thing. 
That's why in the Old Testament, to know someone is the most common euphemism for sexual relations. Genesis chapter four, verse one, and Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. To know is deeply relational and intimate. And notice Jesus' words to the five bridesmaids at the end of that parable. I do not know you. Jesus, he wants us to know him intimately and relationally. Because knowing God is relational. Some see in that parable that we just read that the oil that the bridesmaids had or didn't have is kind of a symbol for the Holy Spirit. It's this abiding kind of relationship with Christ. Because on that day, we're not gonna go into that wedding feast and it's not gonna be like, oh, hey, I'm Jesus, nice to meet you. What was your name? No, it's gonna be Clementine, welcome home, my beloved. How I've longed to see your face and hold you. Welcome home, Shelby. It's gonna be deeply intimate. It's not gonna be a first time meeting. It's this deeply relational and experiential and intimate knowing. But Paul definitely is also speaking to wisdom as well. He says that we may be a, have discernment, able to approve what is good or right or valuable, that we may be able to test what is good, what is excellent. Guys, there are many narratives out there about what is good, what is right, or what is valuable. And Paul's prayer for the church is that we would be able to call out the false promises of the world, of what everyone around us says is good. The easiest one to pick on in our culture's belief is that sex is the best, most valuable thing in the world. Everything about our culture screams that, and if you haven't picked up on that, you're sleeping. <laughs> it screams, doesn't it, right? It screams that you are only fulfilled, you're only happy if you're having sex, that your truest, most authentic thing about who you are, the core of your person, is your sexuality and your sexual identity. And scripture and the spirit of God scream, no, it's not. It's not, that's a lie. Or, it's, or it tells us that we'll be happier, we'll be more fulfilled if we keep on hustling just over the hill once we get that promotion, once we get that house, once we finally have enough money to take care of ourselves, to like get rid of our anxiety, to make dad proud, then like we'll be good, then we'll be fulfilled, then we'll be full. And scripture and the spirit of God say no, wrong. Paul wants us to be wise because he wants us to flourish. We talked about week one as we read through, Paul has such a heart for that church and his heart is like, I don't want you to be deceived, church. Jesus wants us to be discerning because he wants us to flourish, because he loves you. And Jesus knows that he is the truth that fills that void in our heart that we're searching everywhere else for. 
Over the weekend, I got really into studying like the Jesus movement that happened in Southern California in the late 60s, early 70s. And one of the most like common themes of people's testimonies that got saved, all the hippies that got saved was, I was looking for all the right things in all the wrong places. And I found it in Jesus. What I was looking for in drugs, what I was looking for in sex, I found in Jesus. Paul wants us, as we encounter the wickedness of the world and its allure, to be able to stand on the truth of Scripture and by the Spirit to be able to say, I know what is more valuable, and that is my bride or my groom, and he's coming back. So I'm going to hold out on this thing because my groom is better and he's coming. The enemy in the world, they've been deceivers from the beginning, promising a better way apart from God by our own strength, gratifying the desires of our flesh and ultimately only leading to death. And Paul says, you have church, you need to be able to know the truth, which is Jesus. You have to be wise You need to know scripture and discern and test what is valuable and why. Why does Paul want us to be discerning and wise? So that we may be found pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. Like a bride on her wedding day. This really begins to come alive, the wedding imagery and everything, when you actually like, do just a little bit of study into ancient Jewish like wedding customs. The, the groom would come and he would talk to the father, he would propose, and then the two of them kind of separately would get into this bath called the mikvah and like ritually purify and cleanse themselves. It's very similar to baptism. And then they would exchange vows and the groom would go away and he would prepare the home that they would live in together once they got married. And the bride, while the groom was away preparing a place, would get herself ready. She'd prepare for the party. She'd get the wedding, the wedding garments ready. She'd make sure she has lamps with plenty of oil in case he came in the middle of the night. And surely we are made pure and blameless by the blood of Christ. But the New Testament authors are also quite clear that we are washed by the blood of Jesus and we are to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. That we continue to walk in a manner that is pure and blameless so that we may be found ready on that day, representing and honoring Jesus with our lives. In Revelation 19, it says, the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In scripture, linen is often, it is like the purest white bleached clothing that you could find, the symbol of purity. And that's what the saints are found wearing on the day of the marriage of the Lamb. And what is the linen made of? It is the righteousness, the righteous deeds of the saints. 
I think this kind of relates to what Paul says in verse seven of our text today where he says that we are not just recipients of grace. We're not just passive receivers like thank you and move on, but we are partakers in grace. We are participants in grace. Paul in another letter, he says, should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. You have been washed, you've been made pure by the blood of the lamb, so walk in a manner that is worthy. Walk in that new identity, put on Christ. You're washed, so walk as if you are washed. Don't be like a dog returning to its vomit. Walk in a way that your groom will be proud of. It's kind of like marriage is similar. Like when I married Taylor, it wasn't like, all right, we're committed and I don't have to like work anymore, right? <laughs> like, no, because we're committed, I actually, in my actions, in my deeds, in the way that we relate to each other, I try to communicate with everything that I do how much I love and respect that woman. So that we may be found pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness, that comes through Christ Jesus. So as we prepare for the Lord's return, as we grow in abounding love, as we grow in knowledge and discernment of what is excellent, so that we may be found pure and blameless, by the Holy Spirit we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus. Righteousness it can be defined as what is right or what is just. But I was looking through a couple of dictionaries and there's one that had a couple of definitions that I really liked of righteousness. Listen to these. Righteousness can be defined as the act of doing what is in agreement with God's standards. It's pretty good. I like that one. I like this next one even better. Righteousness is the state of being in proper relationship with God walking in relationship with God. We began in verse six, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So it's God who began a good work in us and is doing a good work in us and will bring it to completion. It's him who, as we walk in relationship with Jesus, he forms in us the fruit of righteousness. You can you know, exhale there, if this has been kind of like building tension. It's Jesus. He forms in us the fruit of righteousness as we walk in relationship with us. He prepares in the depths of our soul a bride made ready for her groom. So if you're asking like, how do I do this? How do I, how do I walk in this? Walk with Jesus. Just walk with Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit will be made evident in your life. The fruit of righteousness. And it will come to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have fruit in this life for sure. But the fruit in this life will pale in comparison to the glory of the fruit in the age to come. And we get to, we get to sit at that marriage feast with King Jesus. 
filled with the fruit of righteousness with our beloved, enjoy his presence on that day. So as we kind of end, I'm gonna move us to communion. And I'm gonna invite you guys to circle up in groups of three. And I've got a few reflection questions for you guys to discuss. We'll take a few minutes to do that, but here's some questions for you guys as y'all gather up. Again, groups of three. How can you begin abounding in love in this church community? What does it look like to know Jesus relationally and practically day to day? And why is it important to be discerning as a follower of Jesus? So go ahead. Um, Don't worry about communion. I'll pull us back together for communion at the end. But circle up groups of three. Spend some time reflecting and discussing. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and call you guys back up. Wrap up combos. Uh, As we kind of come back, whoa. Wanna hear from you guys a little bit. So I want us to hear if anyone's willing to share. Um, what are your thoughts or maybe some thoughts that were shared in your group, particularly around number one of like, how can we continue to grow in loving each other in this space and then throughout the week? So I'd love to hear some thoughts from you guys, whether it's your thoughts or something someone else shared in your group around question number one. Yeah. Um, I have a big sense of just getting to know the people in this church more than just service level. Yeah. Like I said, but actually going, just putting in effort to grab dinner with men. It's easier to talk more about and in depth things about your faith or just personally get to know them to do that instead of the five minutes that you have here. Yeah, absolutely. Getting to know people on a deeper level outside of this space. I'm a you said dinner. I'm a big, like, advocate for getting meals with people. I think that I think there is something actually spiritual that happens over sharing a meal with someone. Um, so, get take people to lunch, grab dinner, invite people into your house. Yeah, that's awesome. Anyone else thoughts on number one? called to be, yeah, that she, if you couldn't hear, she spoke about how the word abiding and abounding kind of sounds similar and how, you know, we've kind of talked a lot about abiding and now turning that, like, 
overflow from that abiding life with Christ, overflowing, which that word carries with it, that overflowing sense of into abounding in love in our church family. Yeah, thanks. Maybe one more, two more. Yeah. Yeah, 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 praying for, I mean, Josh talked about that last week, right? About praying for our church, and the moms specifically praying for kids, but praying for our church collectively, praying for people individually in our church, uh, for sure, absolutely. Um, anyone else have something they wanna share? Didn't know if anyone was like really eager, of like, wait, I wanna say. I'll maybe skip into number three, but you know, uh, so often we want to give our opinion on, on things, matters of culture and of life or whatever you're talking about with yeah. people. And really the word opinion shouldn't even belong anywhere to a, a follower of Christ. It's not my opinion. What does God say about it? And having to know what his word says about, I mean, it's not that simple all the time, but, but generally sure. knowing him and knowing what he's, you know, that's, a, that's where we need to we need to come from that perspective, not because I'm often just blurting out my opinion. On the not <laughs> and, I think that's a lot of us. And, and, uh, and that, that it's truthful for one, and it also provides you a little cover, you know? Yeah. Okay, you know, this is what God says. Yeah, yeah. Speaking on number three, just being rooted in, in truth and our opinion ultimately doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Well, um, there's communion bowls kind of under every other chair on the inside aisle. If you guys want to grab those and pass them down, grab one from Alex. And as we come to communion, uh, communion, this right here, what we hold, represents the body and the blood of Christ. And the body and the blood, communion is the promise that if you are in Christ, you are washed pure by this blood that this juice represents. You are made pure and blameless and you are filled with the fruit of righteousness and you will be at that wedding feast, my friends, if you are in Christ. And so we take this just in remembrance of that promise of Christ and who he was, who he is, and that you know, we will see him one day soon. So take communion as we hop into our beginning or ending worship.